3: Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com.
4: It's September 25th, 2022. I'm Boy Olson. This is Sunday Take. We are in the heat of the election season, and Friday proved that all within the four o'clock hour. We had uh Quite a response from Judge Grothman against uh, Governor Walls in the Feed Our Future case. It's the kind of thing that we're going to talk about here on Sunday Take, but it's also the kind of thing that could change the governor's race. We'll di- dive deep into that. We'll give a take on the week's happenings. And we'll catch up with Pat Kessler on how he views this race, the coverage of it. And the dynamics in 2022 versus history. I'm Boy Olson when we come back the rest of Sunday Tick. Friday afternoon at 441, the court issued a statement, which is very rare. In fact, it is, I think, kind of unprecedented in my history of watching these cases. Um. And so the the statement of uh, Judge Gruthman begin to show us the dynamics of the Feeding Our Future case. Let's just set the record straight. Feeding Our Future sued the Minnesota Department of Education because the Minnesota Department of Education was holding back payments. And so I think it's really important to say, look, the Minnesota Department of Education did smell something, and they tried to stop it. The question, I think, that's a layer below or two layers below is, did they go far enough? So on Wednesday, U.S. Attorney Andy Luger indicted 48 people. And with that, it begins to kind of show a very... Um, political, emotional. And I think another dynamic in this race for governor about how people feel about the state right now. So Judge John H. Guthman released a statement. In that statement, he essentially said that the governor was at least misleading, if not lying. And goes through the case in a very detailed way to say that he didn't ever order MDE to pay Feed Our Future. And the legal technicalities show us that MDE and Feed Our Future worked out whatever issues they had, and MDE paid Feed Our Future. But then... Guthman said, if you can't work out these issues, you have to bring more evidence of fraud, at which point MDE said, okay, we'll go to the feds. So ultimately, the judgment call here is, did MDE go to the feds because they didn't have confidence in the judge or their case? Either way, it led to more Alleged fraud and more misrepresentation of payments. And Andy Luger says this is the floor of the case. So that suggests that there's more coming. Look, fraud in state government isn't new. COVID related fraud over $250 million is massive. It's beginning to line up with a few other issues of just how is the state, quote, taking care of the money? You know, earlier this week, we had a legislative audit show that 85% of homeless grants were not in compliance. That doesn't mean there was fraud. It just means people were not crossing their T's and checking their I's. Look, I think the response from the governor was okay. And as I wrote earlier this week, when there's bad news, this governor doesn't necessarily always want to address it directly. It could be his kryptonite. He also doesn't like to be critiqued. And he's become more and more insular the more, the longer he has served. That doesn't make him a bad governor. It doesn't make this race... Uh, different because the issues of abortion and education and crime and character and personality are all, all going to still play. But I will tell you the Friday, six and a half weeks out, when a judge pushes back hard on a governor is a dynamic we haven't yet seen in Minnesota politics. It is also aligned with the history of governor's races in this state. That there's always a new dynamic at the end. And in the last four to six weeks, as the race closes, is when Minnesotans make up their mind. That, on the heels of a Star Tribune poll that shows that the race is under 10 points between Scott Jensen and Tim Walls. You start to see the puzzle pieces that will make this last six weeks very, very curious and interesting. I'm Blois Olson. When we come back, we're going to talk to Bill Glahn from the Center of the American Experiment. Where would he look? What has he found? And what more should we expect on the Feeding Our Future scandal? I'm Blois Olson. This is Sunday Take on News Talk 830 WCCO.
0: Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced
4: The next guest uh, this week on Sunday Tech is Bill Glon. Bill is with the Center for the American Experiment. He's a researcher. He's been in and around state government for a long time. Um, and he's following the Feed Our Future case closely. And I wanted to have somebody on this week who's following it closely. Because while I'm following it closely, I'm not following it as closely as uh, others and, um, and understanding state government and state contracts and process, I think, is an important kind of pause for us to to dig a little deeper in. So, Bill, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. So, Bill, um, I just want to give a little background. You're with Center for the American Experiment. Obviously, it's a conservative think tank. um, But your background in state government allows you to start to understand whether it's the legislature, a state agency, or, or how those intersect. As you have followed the Feeding Our Future case from when we discovered the raids to we knew there was a federal investigation, maybe even some other angles, what are kind of the key things that you think maybe need a little more probing or a few more answers uh, to bring a, maybe a little more transparency to the case?
5: Yeah, I guess I would start where I start here and work our way back. Yeah. So $250 million or more, the uh, FBI yeah. seems to think it's even bigger than that, have vanished. And they've only been able to recover fifty-five zero million, twenty 20% of it. Now, certainly some of that 250 million actually was spent on food and delivered to hungry school children. So yeah. it's not 100% of it, but we don't know. Is it 50% fraud? Is it 99% fraud? We don't really know. So I think that's the biggest take is how much of the 250 million in missing money actually went to feeding children and how much of it went to buying luxury automobiles and Turkish uh, beachside property or wherever else it went. And I guess the other thing that I'm most concerned at with today in September, has the bleeding stopped? Has the Department of Education cut off funding to every fraudster out there. Uh, one of the things we've heard this week is that they continued to pay. And in fact, most of the money that went out the door went out the door after they contacted the FBI. They, uh, the state claims that the FBI said, oh, keep paying the invoices. We don't want to tip them off that there's an investigation going. So they spent another $220, 230000000 million on this program after the FBI got involved. So as not to tip the hand on the. So I wonder if that's still going on. Are there other people? There have been 48 indicted so far, but there have been a lot of other names that have been named in search warrants and other documents which aren't in this. Are there other people who are doing the same sort of scam that they're also being investigated? We're still paying out. Or are there people who have just flown under the radar the whole time where they're doing the same scam? They just haven't been flagged yet or caught. So I'm concerned that money, we're still throwing good money after bad in this program, even though we've known there's a problem now for several years.
4: Yeah. And and I think that is one of the pieces. And I know that it's, look, we're in the middle of a campaign, an election, there's a governor's race, there's an attorney general's race, and, and each of them had, you know, knowledge or a role. You know, one of the things I am wondering, and I'm wondering if Based on your experience in state government, whether at the agency side or as a researcher in the legislature, if you have a sense of kind of the chain of command or the process. So, for instance, the Attorney General's office represents the Department of Education, they chose not to appeal. Um, they're saying that it was because of they didn't want to run up legal fees and things like that. Well, it's all the same bucket, right? It's all taxpayer money when it's the attorney general being your lawyer or you're handing out money for helping hungry kids. Um, And I'm just wondering if from a legislative perspective, a document request record, where you think there may be a paper trail or evidence of Maybe some of the thinking or some of the process that went into that, because my wondering is and not a lot of people are talking, which then triggers my curiosity even more is what was the what was the conversation? When did so and so know this was an issue? And and should we have known earlier what what did they know? Um, because there is MDE evidence that they did visit a site and saw very little evidence and, and raised that as an issue. But, you know, did somebody not blow the horn loud enough or did somebody blow the horn and somebody didn't hear the horn? And I'm just wondering if where you get your puzzle pieces on that.
5: Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. So let's yeah. start with the, the, the attorney general, the attorney general by statute is the lawyer for all state agencies you know, So when I was at a state agency, when I would be represented in some proceeding, somebody from the attorney general's office would be sitting next to me acting as my lawyer. Yep. So, uh, but at the end of the day, the decision not to appeal, that's the client's decision. That's the right. agency's decision. The uh, attorney general is just the lawyer. That being said, the attorney general has a separate set of responsibilities around regulating charitable organizations And the attorney general's office noticed a lot of these irregularities in in some of these nonprofits. They didn't have their paperwork in order. They didn't have their tax returns on file. So the attorney general separate from being the agency's lawyer had interaction with some of these entities. And did they fail to follow up on it? Did they fail to do their due diligence? When this stuff, again, we all heard about it. I heard about it for the first time. When uh, the FBI did their raids on January 20th. But if you look back in the record, there was a lot of media reporting about these organizations and their fight with the Department of Education going back to 2021 to 2020, even back to 2018. Uh, The lawsuits have been voluminous in this. So I guess I would wonder what kind of case got presented to that uh, Ramsey County judge who ruled that they had to keep the money flowing and approve all the applications, the judge can only deal with what's in front of him. So did somebody, the client or the lawyer, drop the ball? The governor called the decision speechless. So obviously they weren't happy with it, but did they do a good enough job in presenting it to the judge? And I guess I would like to see the paper trail. You asked about the paper trail between the agency and the governor's office and the attorney general's office, if that's permitted, to see what the thought process was in deciding not to appeal because uh, there have been several explanations of why they didn't appeal, but I'd like to see what they were saying to each other at the time. What was the contemporaneous dis- uh, discussion with that rather than an ex-post rationalization to get the media to stop asking questions. So there's a lot of paper I think probably got pushed. to, But again, we've had these problems with the record keeping. This is all now a year and a half to two and a half years ago? Did these emails get retained? Did all this documentation still around to be found? Uh, We've run into this in the past where there's, well, we have a documents retention policy and that email is too old. We didn't save it, didn't think we'd need it. So uh, I'm not sure how much uh, you're gonna get in that, but lawyers keep lots of paperwork, agencies keep lots of paperwork. So there's probably some discussion of who decided not to appeal and what the basis of it was.
4: My guest is Bill Glahn. He's a fellow at the American Exper- Center for the American Experiment. We're talking about the Feed Our Future case and kind of the process. Bill, you raised an interesting thing, the paper trail retention of documents. On that finer point, in theory, if they notified the feds of the investigation, they would then know that they should be keeping the paperwork. So hopefully they that uh, isn't uh, the issue you know finally, when we get to the judge and the court and the client's decision to appeal, and in this case, the client is the Minnesota Department of Education any sense of the way in which the you know if 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 i rep if i if somebody's my attorney, they say you know it's only gonna cost more money for appeal, your odds are low, or oh we should definitely appeal on this any sense of the dialogue or the the dynamic between the attorney general's office and state agencies. Uh, especially on cases like this, because I I do know that it becomes a very close working relationship between agencies and their counsel.
5: Right. If you're an agency head, uh, you trust your lawyer, you develop a working relationship with them. And if they come to you and say, hey, you lost the case, they found you in contempt, they find you for court fees and lawyer fees. You know, this is a no-hoper going forward. So I could imagine that conversation being held. But at the same time they were having that conversation, the Department of Education also took this all to the FBI and said, hey, we found evidence of this. You really need to look into this. And they immediately launched an investigation. So at the same time, they might have been they might. And we're just speculating here. We don't know. They might have heard advice that, well, maybe the Court uh, of Appeals in Minnesota isn't your best avenue for success perhaps uh, letting this be the feds problem and let the FBI take it from here that we felt like we've done our part. We found the fraud. We, we called the cops, the cops will take it from here. At the same time, I judge them by their more recent actions since the FBI raids occurred. The department of education has completely changed their tune on this stuff so you you see documents or media accounts from 2020 2021 where they say well we don't have investigative powers it's not for us to decide what's fraud you know some other people need to make that determination since january as far as these nonprofits are concerned they have a zero tolerance policy they will yeah. not pay any invoices their invoices back to november they have refused to pay even though in legal and quasi legal proceedings, they lose time after time, after time, somehow a, fl- a switch got flipped in January and they none shall pass. And yep. so if they have that ability today to not pay invoices, not to applications for, for locations to, to stonewall completely these organizations, why didn't they have that same power a year ago and take the same approach a year ago? So I see with their actions today and I applaud them. I'm, I'm happy we have the new gotten tough uh, department of education that won't pay invoices, no matter what people tell them they have to do. But I think they could have had that same attitude a year earlier and saved taxpayers a couple hundred million dollars.
4: As we wrap here, uh, Bill, where, where are, where are you looking next? What are you looking for next in this story? Because my sense is, you know, we're going to be talking about this story for for weeks, if not months to come.
5: Right. And so I've gone through a first pass of all 10 indictments in the case, 257 pages, 48 defendants. And so what I'm looking for next is the connections. Yep. So there's a lot of other nonprofit organizations who are either just named by initials or not named, but named by role in these indictments where I'll go track around who are these people, what role did they play? And again, I flagged a handful of organizations back at the beginning of the years, like, well, these other nonprofits have all the characteristics of feeding our future, but they don't seem to be the subject of an investigation as far as we know, and they haven't been shut off by the Department of Education. Are they completely legitimate? And then there are a couple of other nonprofits we haven't talked about today that the Department of Education has completely shut down, despite losing some appeals, they right. have shut them down. Uh, are those the next uh, shoes to drop? Are, are there gonna be more, we know there are gonna be more indictments, but will the new indictments go deeper into feeding our future, or will they spread to these other nonprofit organizations that have only been mentioned in passing or in <clears throat> in using uh, initials and not names? So, Again, yeah, I've been writing about this for months now, and I feel like I'm going to be writing about this for months. One of the things I find when I Google some of these addresses you see in the search warrants, yeah. it's not just the Feeding Our Future, but there's daycare facilities, there's personal care attendant businesses located there, medical transportation businesses, yeah. and we've heard about problems with some of these other programs. And so uh, I, I can tell you one of the people who was indicted uh, in the 48, also owned uh, a childcare facility, also owned one of these other companies that are involved in these other businesses. And, okay. You know, it could just be a coincidence, or it could be there are more layers to this onion that the uh, authorities haven't gotten to or have gotten to, but are focusing on, on the big prize in front of them.
4: Bill Glad, thanks for joining me on Sunday Take. Thanks. When we come back, Pat Kessler is going to join us. We're going to talk about the Feeding Our Future. We're going to talk about the campaign season. And, of course, he wants to talk about go for football. I'm Blois Olson. You're listening to the Sunday Take on News Talk
3: 830 WCCO
4: We're back on Sunday Take. The final conversation this Sunday is uh, It's one I'm looking forward to. It's with Pat Kessler, a longtime WCCO TV reporter. Full disclosure, a former neighbor of mine, uh, longtime friend, uh, many times uh, advice giver. Uh, and not to date ourselves, but I just did the math, Mr. Kessler. Oh, yes. <laughs> we've officially known each other 28 years.
2: That is scary. It feels like a lot longer, Blois. It does. It in does. a good way. In a good way. Yeah. No. Thanks for joining me. Uh, really happy to be here. Great show.
4: Well, you know, um, you know, we're in the middle of this campaign season. You've covered a lot of them. You're not daily covering it, but you are, I know, watching it very closely. What's your sense of kind of how this campaign looks to other years the dynamics of 2022, the way the media is now versus 12, 20, 25 years ago?
2: Well, it's a great question because things are all different from the way they were 25 years ago, 15 years ago, even five years ago. Uh, These campaigns nationally and in the state are in the state of Minnesota are are much, much different than they used to be. Uh, They're much more negative, the messaging yep. that goes out, goes out in a much different way, the targeting of certain groups. That's unlike anything we've seen in a long time, very, very sophisticated. Uh, and the, the messages, as I say, are much more negative. And so it's almost as if uh, many campaigns are trying to, uh, th- are trying to get the, the negative message out to their base in order to get them out to vote. I don't know how that's going to work. It's always been uh, my feeling, an old time political philosophy, is that in campaigns, it's not about punishing the heretic. It's about seeking the converts. And I don't see that so much anymore. I see a lot of punishing going on
4: in uh, campaigning nowadays. You know, it's interesting you say that because as I looked this week at numbers and the converted voters that Scott Jensen might need if he wants to win or the folks who voted for walls in 2018. And if they're going to show up, you and I kind of watch these pockets. We try to figure out where the swing voters are. It just doesn't feel to me like it's as clear this year into where they think the, the public is, or where, as I say, what's the mood of Minnesota Um, because the mood is all over the map. I go to Duluth, I go to Rochester, I go to Mankato and there is not one mood of Minnesota. It really depends on your place in life and your place in time and how old your kids are or, you know, what you do for a living. And it just feels more segmented, which is harder, like you said, to figure, find the converts because I think there's fewer people to convert.
2: Yeah, I think uh, COVID uh, threw a wrench into a lot of this. Uh, A lot of things happened during the pandemic, uh, both economically to people, where they work, how they live, where the kids and how they go to school. All of that has changed us in fundamental ways that I think we don't yet understand. And so we are in a, a period of flux here where things are really starting to be different from the way, literally, from the way they were before. It used to be, and it, and it might be still true, that uh, if you're Scott Jensen, if you're a Republican uh, running statewide, you're going to need to get a pretty hefty amount of the vote uh, in, in Lake County and in, in uh, Duluth. You're going to need to get it in Rochester and St. Cloud and in those uh, places. And it's not as certain anymore who is going to get votes where i'm sure you 've seen all the polls, and uh, they're they're yep. wildly different uh, as you discuss that one of the things that 's interesting to me is that there is such a big divide now between uh, outside the metro area voters and in the metro area voters and it's good and bad for both parties. Uh, the Republicans have picked up quite a bit of of uh, traction in northern Minnesota in particular on the iron range and all outside the metro area, I think in large part because of the messaging, but also because of Donald Trump. But it has been gradually going that way. Meanwhile, as you know, the Democrats have pretty much solidified the uh, metro area, and it's all Democrats uh, that are uh, being elected there. So Republicans can claim, and they do, hey, look, um, the greater part of Minnesota is for us Uh but the Democrats can claim, yeah, but you've lost all your representation in the metro area. So we do have two Minnesotas, which is a lot different from uh, Governor Waltz's campaign motto: "One Minnesota." There are two Minnesotas here.
4: You uh, you raised Governor Walls and that theme of one Minnesota. I'm I'm of course talking to Pat Kessler, longtime WCCO TV reporter, covered the Capitol for many years. Oh. Governor Walls is an interesting governor to cover, and um, I'm guessing you went back to Al or Rudy Perpich, and I started during the Perpich, but mostly the Carlson years. Um, is, it, is it a sign of the times that he seems to, you know, kind of not be as accessible as traditional governors? And I say that in that he's probably had more news conferences and news availabilities than any governor in modern time. But they're never there, you know. After COVID, there isn't a lot of quote news, and there's not a lot of access other than those news conferences, one-on-one interviews, those kinds of things. What's your sense of the way Walls kind of works with the media?
2: Well, I'm surprised uh, at uh, Governor Walz uh, a little bit because uh, he came into office uh, promising to be completely transparent about everything, and I have found him much less than transparent. I don't think he has lived up to what he promised. Uh, There are many, many uh, indications of this, but he is uh, heavily surrounded by people who manage his message. And I suppose politically, you got to do that. And he's done a pretty good job of of managing the message. And you also got to say that he has gone through some incredibly tough times, historic tough times, where he has had to make decisions that uh, pretty much no other Minnesota governor has had to make uh, shutting down the state. So you got to give them that part of it. Uh, but I, I do believe that there are so many things that have been happening in the last three to four years uh, that I, I, I think have not been fully explored in uh, uh, Governor Walz's role in them. And uh, particularly, uh, let's talk about the the, the uh, feeding our future. Yeah. Federal food fraud thing. So that's just one of one of the instances. I know we'll get into that in just a moment. But uh, for Governor Waltz, I, I think he has not been as accessible or transparent uh, as expected. Uh, and I I love you very much, Blois, but I'm going to gently disagree with you. I don't think he has had more press conferences and more availabilities uh, than any other governor. OK, uh, it's it's my it's it's my memory. Uh, that uh, Governor Dayton was out there all the time, and he would stand up there, uh, and he he got hammered. He got hammered uh, by Republicans, and he would stand up there and take uh, uh, pretty much any question. Yeah. Governor Governor Palenti was also somebody who uh, stood up and uh, pretty much took everything. So um, th- there there is a little bit different uh, style and strategy and tactic uh, by Governor Waltz. and let's face it, I I, I think. Right now, it's working for him.
4: No, I think it has worked. That's the that's one of the call it frustrating or call it whatever uh, you want to call it is that it has worked. And when I said that about the number of press conferences, I meant like through COVID, where it's every day and it's you know those kinds of things. But absolutely, sure. But 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 you made this point the other day, which is standing up there, taking all the questions, digging deeper, you know, um, uh, that that has become a frustrating part. Let's pivot to this feeding our future story, which you and I talked offline. Um, Stories like this in state government do not come along every day. And it kind of clogs my memory of many other stories where the longer it goes, the more you know, you start to get emails or documents or other things. As you've sta- started to see this unfold with this week's indictments, are there any places that if you were still on this beat every day that you would be poking and prodding to learn more about the, the state's role in this fraud?
2: Well, absolutely. There's a couple of really big, important things that uh, have to do with this. And and that is, what did Governor Waltz know about this fraud, and when did he know it? Uh, he was silent on this, as was the Minnesota Department of Education, uh, and for more than a year, uh, that when this uh, was under investigation, when the fraud was happening, how long had it been going on before they went to court? Uh, why didn't they appeal the ruling? Governor Waltz said the ruling that they had to continue to provide the funding for these uh, allegedly shady groups that was yep. were flagged by the Minnesota Department of Education. Governor Waltz this week said uh, that, that uh, he thinks the judge who ruled they have to keep spending the money needs to be investigated. What does that even mean? Um, This this is a really serious issue about a staggering, jaw-dropping, record-setting level of fraud in the state of Minnesota that happened at the Minnesota Department of Education. This money went to 50 states. Uh, Are there $250 million of fraud in every state? I I think those are very serious questions that in the middle of a governor's race, uh, the uh, Republican candidate uh, should be... uh, raising this
4: one of the elements here and it's been widely reported and talked about and fretted about by many is just look journalism is expensive and it takes a lot and news media has had a rough business run of it 20 years ago how many reporters would have been in this story versus now do you think
2: well, I think a lot. I I see where you're going with this. Uh, the where is local news? Where is the investigations? Yeah. Uh, I, I I think uh, and everyone can agree just on the metrics of this. Uh, local news has been cut back. Investigative teams that used to be three, four, five people at uh, local television stations have been cut way back at newspapers. Uh, it's also been cut uh, dramatically back. If you had a uh, ten people on an investigative unit, uh, you probably have one or two, maybe three right. at the tops. Yeah. So that has changed things quite a bit. And that's not to say uh, they, they they could have sniffed out uh, this fraud earlier, investigative reporters, because uh, to their credit, uh, reporters at the Star Tribune were on this really early, yes. uh, but stymied uh, by uh, by the brick wall at the Minnesota Department of Education, who uh, the, which refused to, uh, th- where they could not get the information in yep. a timely manner so there is all of that and and it's true uh but th- this is just the latest in a series and, and not just with uh, governor waltz but series of enormous gigantic <laughs> gigantic state departments that seem to have great difficulty um with oversight over literally hundreds of millions of dollars and uh although Many see it as political. The Senate Republican Education Committee issued a report uh, uh, a week ago, two weeks ago, yep. uh, about, about missteps that may have occurred in the middle of an election campaign. You, many people will interpret that as political, but they make some good points in there uh, that I think the, uh, the, the Democratic administration uh, should absolutely uh, uh,
4: address. Well, and as we wrap here, um... Before we get to some fun questions, maybe about go for football or something. uh Um what what do you think? Um one of the you talked about the, about the Department of Education. We've talked about the governor, and then just for listeners to understand that the Department of Education is represented by the Attorney General's office. And so, you know, there's another third kind of link here. Um, you know, I there's gotta be I look at this this way. there either is a paper trail of what they were thinking or what their strategy was to deal with this, or there's not in either case it's going to tell us a lot about this story as we go forward
2: well, i don't know this for sure, but uh, if the uh, attorney general of Minnesota was prosecuting the case going to court for the uh for the Department of education uh there's got to be a paper trail of Court filings of emails going back and forth, of uh, of of the Department of Education alarmed about feeding our future. What should we do about this? And uh, and I want to say again that uh, education department, after a period of time, um, tried to cut off the funding, but were uh, stymied by a yeah. court ruling. But then again, uh, just to remind our listeners, uh, then Minnesota just dropped it after the court ordered them to keep going, rather than you know, appealing it, uh, taking other actions. So th- there is more there. I highly doubt that we're going to know more about it now with a federal investigation underway, especially, uh, and, and I don't think it will will materially right now affect the, how many weeks do we have left, you know, co- less than a couple it. of months left, 40 days left uh, before the election. So, so yeah, uh, that's a long way to go to say that um th- this there's a lot here that we don't know right now, and when w- when will we know it probably after the election uh, the AG's race is very close here according to polling. uh the governor's race not so close uh, the Star Tribune poll most recent uh, is uh, the Star Tribune care 11 NPR poll. I think it's eight points, but yeah. uh, it's, it's I don't think it's going to be a really, really close race at this point if the Republican campaign for governor was a little more focused um, and if they had more money maybe it would go a different direction
4: yeah we'll wait and see all right your other passion is go for sports it's football Uh season Uh uh-oh how are you going to get to Indianapolis are you going to row a boat or are you going to drive or are you going to fly
2: well the plans are already made uh, I it's, have no uh, doubt. Uh, it's, it's the first week, uh, and I, it's off the top of my head, I think it's like second, uh, first, second, and third of December. Um, I don't see a loss on our schedule uh, for Minnesota Gopher football. So, um, you know, if there's some fluke, something happens, we might lose a couple of games. I think they are in contention uh, for winning the West, and if that happens, then they go to Indianapolis, and uh, we'll play a championship game there.
4: And then – how long and how expensive is the contract for one PJ Fleck? Well, you know, uh, I, I wonder about this uh, because
2: if PJ goes to the Rose Bowl, um, the next level would be playing for a national championship. People talk about Fleck going somewhere all the time. Why would he want to go anywhere other than this? Taking a program uh, from, from not successful to hugely successful is a great accomplishment. So I'd say we got a few years left uh, for him before he goes for the national championship. But where does he go from here? Where do you go? I mean, uh, Alabama, Louisiana, do you go to Notre Dame? Wh- where does a coach like P.J. Fleck go? That's the question.
4: I predict Nebraska will take a run at him after the season. Who wants to go to Nebraska? Blois, I love you. No one wants to go to Nebraska. Well, I go to Nebraska to golf, but that's a different story. Well, yeah, I mean, great state, great place, but I don't want to go to that team if I'm P.J. Flack. You know what the Nebraska tagline is? I want to know. Nebraska, it's not for everyone.
2: (laughs) That's true. That's literally their tourism. (laughs) That's
4: true, I know,
2: I know. Oh, God, that's funny. That's hilarious. And and it's not, uh, but we love Nebraska, just not on game day. That's right. Pat Kessler, thanks for joining me
4: on Sunday Take. It's always lovely to see you, Blois. Good luck to you. Thanks. Next week, we'll check in, hopefully, with some federal officials. Calls are out for Tom Emmer and Amy Klobuchar on the same show. On Sundays at 9, it's Sunday Take on News Talk 830 WCCO.
0: T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours